Well, welcome again, everyone. Good to see you all. Welcome to week two of this conversation that we're calling Paradoxology. I, am, I continue to be so excited for uh, this series and, and what it, it means, I think, for our community as we continue to build culture, as we uh, even build our approach to theology. And I said this last week, and I'm just going to probably keep repeating it for the next several weeks uh, as a way to set this up, but a, a couple of goals for this conversation we want Discovery to be a church for people who are in process, not people who are finished products. And we want Discovery to be safe enough to explore our questions, explore our doubts, bring all of this, uh, this stuff that sometimes it feels like, oh, I, can't, I can't ask that at church. We want to be a place where we can ask those kinds of questions, where it's safe to do that kind of exploration. But at the same time, we want to be just dangerous enough that we might actually be challenged and transformed by the good news of Jesus. And so we are. We're looking at some of these really big questions. We're stepping into these tensions, these paradoxes, these two truths that are seemingly contradictory. And, and here's the thing. We're not going to answer all of your questions. The goal of this is not to come up with, with like the, the sort of churchy, party line answer to these really big questions because we believe that when we live between these two truths, when we hold those tensions well, that's actually where God shows up. And that is where we find the abundant life that Jesus talks about and offers us and invites us into. That's where we find good news. All right, so that's kind of where we're going with all this. I want to begin this morning with um, talking about questions that kids ask, all right? If you've been around kids or have kids of your own, you know that kids have this way of asking these great questions that just sort of cut right through all the typical formalities or normal formalities that we have in life. My daughter is, is amazing at this. She, when she shows up into a new uh, social situation, she finds you know, the person that's kind of her peer, and she just will walk up to them and say, hey, can we be friends? And, and I'm like, how do you do that? I don't have any of that in me. I don't know where she gets it, but, but I love that. Just that ability to initiate friendship right out of the gate. That one's kind of cute, but sometimes the, the, the questions that kids ask can be really embarrassing. Like when you're at the grocery store and your kid is pointing at someone saying, why is that person so old? It's a very humiliating moment as a parent. Then there's the, the question, Dad, why do you look so tired? And it's like, well, because I was up three times last night helping you out. That's why I look so tired. But who's keeping score here? So sometimes the, the, these questions are, are cute. Sometimes they're sort of embarrassing. But then there are these moments where kids ask really deep questions. And one that my son, Cruz, has been asking a lot recently, it, it, it's sort of along these lines. We've had this conversation a couple of times at, at, at bed. I'll be tucking him in and doing the whole bedtime routine, and he'll say, hey, Dad, tomorrow after breakfast, can we go see God? Uh, <laughs> sure. How do you answer that question? So I've, I've, he's asked this a couple times, and we've been talking about it a little bit, and, and one of, the, you know, one of the questions I ask him back is, well, what does that, what does that mean? How are we going to, you know, what do we do? How do we, go, how do we go find him? And he says, well, 
he's really far away, so we're going to need a fast car. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see where this is going. Now, this is actually a, a version of a very common question that, that kids ask, this question, where is God? And I love this question because, uh, at least the way that I understand it from Cruz's perspective, is he really wants to know. He really wants to see God and have an interaction with him and, and be able to know where he can find him. And, and if we're being honest, this is a great question, whether you are a kid or not. Where is God? All of us, I think, have wrestled with this at some point in our experience just as human beings. There's a somewhat mythical story about Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, who is said to have asked or said uh, to have looked out the window of his shuttle uh, as he's entering into orbit and said, I do not see God. Now, we may not have this expectation of some sort of physical manifestation, seeing God in some physical way, but we do wrestle with this question, and a lot of times this question is tied to our circumstances and how, how close we feel God is based on what's happening in our lives. In other words, when things are going well, we might say something like, God is with me, God is close, right? And if things are not going well, if things are going poorly, we sense that God must be far away. And our questions become, where was God when this tragedy happened? Where was God when my friend Jane got cancer for the second time? Why does it feel like God is so distant right now? We have all probably wrestled with this question, where is God? And Roly and the band did a great job of setting this up, but this question leads us right into the heart of what we are calling the Moses paradox. What do we do with the God who is so close and yet also can feel so far away? Few biblical figures embody this paradox as well as Moses. Moses had some of the most incredible personal encounters with God, maybe of any human being that has ever lived, and yet at the same time, and maybe even because of that, knew and experienced and understood God's distance. If you have a Bible, look up Exodus 33. This is towards the front of your Bibles, the second book after Genesis. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone on our team will, will come around and make sure that you have a Bible if you need a physical copy. You can also follow along on the screen. Exodus 33, we're going to start in verse 12, and this is just an incredible conversation that Moses has with God, and it goes like this. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And then the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from the other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. We'll pause there for a moment. Remember last week we looked at the Abraham paradox, and a big part of Abraham's story was this promise that God gave him of a son. And Abraham does have a son. His name is Isaac, and Isaac has some sons of his own, and this family of Abraham starts to grow, a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to him, that your family will grow and be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Now, a couple of generations later, there's a bunch of brothers, and these brothers get in a big fight with each other, and there's all this sort of uh, weird family dynamics and dysfunction that's taking place. And then on top of that, there's a famine in the land that Abraham's family is living in. All of this conspires to send them down to Egypt. So Abraham's family settles in Egypt, and this is actually the fulfillment of a prediction that God made in Genesis 15. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So they, they settle in Egypt, and this very thing that God predicted happens. Abraham's family grows. They're now known as the Hebrews. And the king of Egypt, also known as Pharaoh, is not super comfortable with this foreign group of people growing in number within his country. So he puts them to work, and then eventually he enslaves them, and he has them making bricks to help build his empire. And the workload grows, and with that, oppression grows, and with that, a fear grows that the Hebrews might not like this arrangement of things and might rebel. So the Pharaoh resorts to population control. If you have your Bible still open, flip over to Exodus chapter 1. I want us to look at a scene here for just a moment. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. The king of Egypt said... To the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I love how they just sort of cover that up. (laughs) So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. The Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, just two quick sort of parenthetical statements about this uh, scene. The first is this, and this is, I think, really important for us in how we approach and think about Scripture. Very rarely is the action of Scripture focused on the primary political power of that time. There certainly are major political powers and empires that are a part of the story of Scripture, including Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome. But again, very rarely is that what the story is about. 
Most of the action revolves around a group of people or a person who is the minority, who is the outsider, or who just simply is the the person or the group of people who do not have the most power. And again, this is so important for us as we read Scripture, particularly as people who are living in the dominant political power of our time. Second side note, we should probably talk more about people in Scripture like Shifra and Pua. What these midwives do here is just an incredible act of civil disobedience, defying this direct order, this direct law of the land by saving these boys. God uses their courage to bring about the most significant event in the Old Testament, the exodus of his people from slavery in Egypt. We need to talk more about these kinds of heroic characters. Now, back to Moses. And by the way, those, some of those themes we'll continue to explore in this series. But back to Moses. This is the environment that he is born into. All right, all of these baby boys, these Hebrew baby boys are being killed His mom, though, hides him to spare his life, and when she can no longer hide the fact that there's a baby boy living in her house, she technically follows the rules, and she puts him into a basket and sends him down the Nile River. And he floats down the river and is miraculously discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses becomes this very interesting character because he is both an insider and an outsider, a tension that will mark his life. He gets to grow up in in Pharaoh's courts with all of the the privilege and the security, the opportunities that that provides, but he's still a Hebrew. And then later in his story, later on, when he does rejoin his people, he's one of them, ethnically speaking, but he's also distant from them because he did not grow up as a slave. So in many ways, what a perfect person to wrestle with this tension of nearness and farness. Proximity and distance, connection, but also separation. Now Moses tries to resolve this tension the way that I think many of us try to resolve tensions in our life. He runs away. And he heads out into the wilderness, and he spends quite a bit of time out there as a shepherd. But it turns out that he cannot run away from God. And so again, if you still have your Bible open, flip over to Exodus chapter 3. Here, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and tells him, you are going to be the one who leads my people out of slavery and into freedom. And in this scene, in this moment, we're plunged right back into this paradox. Why does God, the God of the universe, appear in a bush this out, out in the wilderness? Why does God reveal himself to Moses, this outsider? Why does God call to Moses, but then Moses, he tells Moses, don't come any further? And why is Moses drawn towards this bush, but then hide his face. Hang on to those questions for a moment. Fast forward in Moses' story. He is obedient to what God asked him to do, and he helps lead the Hebrew people out of slavery and into freedom. And then he gets to lead them on a long and, and crazy journey through the desert, back to the land that God had given to them, again, through this promise he made 
to Abraham. And what's interesting is that on this journey, God interacts with his people in all sorts of interesting ways. He directs their travel through a pillar of smoke by night or at day and a pillar of fire at night. He instructs them to build what's called a tabernacle, this big tent thing that sort of serves as a place for them to gather and have meetings and worship and hear from God. And then he spends significant time with Moses, who serves as an intermediary, this sort of go-between between God and the people. So all throughout this story and their journey, there's this closeness. God rescuing them, giving them direction, communicating with them, providing them a place to meet. And yet there's also limits. In the tabernacle, there are certain rooms people cannot go in. And the cloud and fire thing is like this, this sort of cool GPS prototype, but you can't really like snuggle up with a pillar of fire, right? And it's great that Moses gets to have all of these conversations with God, but what about everyone else? How come no one else gets to have these kinds of experiences? The God who is so close and also so far away. Now, to help us sort of sort this out and to unpack some of this tension in this paradox, we need to understand two big theological words. So bear with me here for a minute as we explore two big theological words. The first is the word transcendence. Transcendence is the idea that God is separate from the created world. He's bigger than it. He's outside of it. He's set apart from the universe that he made. Solomon, who built a temple for God, reflects on this truth when he says, Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. God himself says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's transcendence, his otherness. Why is transcendence so important? A couple reasons. One, without transcendence, we have this tendency to get kind of sentimental and, and, and sappy about God. He's like our cute little buddy that we carry around in our pocket with us. Without transcendence, we devolve into pantheism, this idea that God is creation itself, or we lose a sense of the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God. But God is transcendent. He is other. He is outside of this. This is why Moses cannot get any closer to the burning bush, why he takes off his sandals, why he hides his face. And then there's the truth that God's transcendence is for our protection. We cannot handle the full expression of God's presence. Back to Exodus 33, the end of this conversation, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll let you see it, but not all of it. Look at verse 19. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 
So again, we need transcendence to remind us of the otherness, the, the bigness, the mystery, the holiness of God. But we also need this space, some distance for our protection. And when held well, this half of the paradox, I think, it, it produces more awe, more wonder, more reverence, and more worship. Now, the other side of this is what theologians call imminence. Imminence is the reality that God is involved in his creation. He's not this the, the sort of divine watchmaker who puts all the pieces together, hits go, and then just sort of disappears. He is involved in his creation. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God is present. And so Moses can see that in this burning bush. And the people can meet with God in this tabernacle. And Moses can talk to God like a friend. Chris Kandaya names the paradox, summarizes it this way. The moral purity of a perfect God draws us to him, but his holiness and our sinfulness separate us. And so it is for our benefit that God keeps his distance, but it is for our salvation that God comes close. It's for our benefit that God keeps his distance, but for our salvation that God comes close. Salvation. All throughout the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of a decisive act of God in which he would ultimately save and rescue his people, much like the Exodus moment. The salvation, it was thought it would come through a person, a Messiah, a king, someone who would lead them and, and rule and, and establish a kingdom for them to live in. And we're told with the hindsight of the New Testament that this all comes to fruition in the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, all this took place, all the events that lead up to the birth of Jesus took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, one way to tell the story of Scripture is to tell it through this lens of transcendence and imminence. The story of Scripture is the story of God getting closer and closer and closer, of God erasing the distance that sin had created between us and him. In Genesis 3, we're told that God walked with human beings in the Garden of Eden. Imagine being able to tell your son, yeah, we'll see God tomorrow at breakfast. He'll be there at the table with us. But Adam and Eve rebel against God's good created order, and they are removed, physically removed from the garden and this ability to walk with God in that way. There is a distance relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually because of the barrier that sin 
creates. But from that point on, God goes on this mission to get closer and closer and closer. And again, that mission reaches its focal moment in the arrival of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. And in the Greek, that word dwelling is the same as the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The way that God resolves this tension is through a whole other paradox. Another big theological word, incarnation. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God and fully human. Jesus is able to take on sin and death and overcome the separation between us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then listen to this, let us draw near to God with a a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. His blood uh, spilled for us, his body broken for us in our place is the definitive act erasing the distance between us and God, allowing us to live in a close, intimate, right relationship again. Come near to God and he will come near to you. A couple takeaways, I think, from the Moses paradox. The first one is this. This paradox shows us that there's actually a beauty in accepting the limits that God places around himself. There's a beauty in accepting the limits that God places around himself. The first step in accepting these limits is recognizing our part in that distance, our sinful human nature. Both of those passages we just read from Hebrews and James lead us into yet another tension. Through Jesus, God has erased the distance between us, but we also need to name our part, confess our part. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We need to own and name and confess our part in creating distance between us and God. But I think there's also a whole other aspect to the beauty of the limits that God places on his presence. When you go and and visit a redwood forest here in California, there's usually one tree or a couple of trees that are sort of marked as the tallest or oldest tree in that particular grove. But if you find the right person, and you know who I'm talking about, right? It's that person that knows just a little bit too much information about that particular park. If you find the right person, they'll tell you that isn't actually the tallest redwood tree. The tallest redwood tree is somewhere in Northern California, close to the Oregon border, and they don't tell people where it is. Now, why, would it, why wouldn't they let the public know where this tree is? There's a recognition 
that this tree needs distance, needs protection, because if this tree were destroyed, something important would be lost. And so you might say it this way, the tree is set apart. There are limits around it to keep it sacred and holy. When we lose the transcendence of God, when we lose that sense of the holy and the sacred, we actually start to lose something about our humanity. It is quite healthy to recognize our sin and God's holiness and the incompatibility of the two. Recognizing God's transcendence, it it, it right-sizes us, it rightly orders our world, and so the, the limits of God's presence and his holiness, again, lead us towards more sense of awe and wonder and reverence and worship. Now, again, the other side of this paradox, the other conclusion I think we can draw is this. It's okay to ask God for more. What stands out to me the most about the conversation between Moses and God is just how unfiltered and honest and bold Moses is. And how God is not the least bit put off by any of that. Now, Moses is not asking for a raise, for a nicer chariot to travel through the desert on. It's not the kind of more that we're talking about here. But if you are feeling that distance, if you are feeling that God is far from you, this conversation is a great model for us. God, show me more. I want to see your glory. Three years ago, almost to the day, I started a program called Soul Care. This is a program in the Bay Area for for pastors. It's a year-long thing, a a spiritual direction program that is is designed to do exactly what it sounds like, to care for the souls of of pastors and to create a space where where they get to kind of be spoiled and poured into and they don't have to give anything. And it was one of the best experiences that I've ever had. And they started that journey with us with this conversation between God and Moses. And let me tell you, there is just a lot in this conversation that resonates as a leader. You've been telling me these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I feel that as a leader. And when you know the the Moses story and what comes immediately before this, you know that Moses is at a real low point. Chapter before this, the the people are, are wrestling with the tension of transcendence and eminence. And so they make a little golden cow to worship as a way to handle that. And they're rebelling and they're complaining about everything, about being in the desert, all this kind of stuff. Moses is having a really hard time when he has this interaction and this conversation with God. In the same way, I, I was at kind of a low point when, when I started Soul Care. We had uh, been back in California after a, a season of life in Boston. We'd been uh, serving in a church for about six months. 
after being in campus ministry for a really long time, and I was asking, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Can I do this? I, I don't know if I fit into this church culture. God, why did you bring us all the way back to California for this? And as I prayed through this conversation over and over, asking for more, what I heard from God was what God spoke to Moses. Steve, I know your name, and I will go with you, and I will give you rest. Ask for more. It's okay to ask God for more. Our God is a generous God. He wants to share himself with you. He's gone through these great lengths to be with you. And he says, my presence will go with you. I will do what you've asked. I'll show you what I am able to show you. So again, one side of this paradox, we have God's transcendence, his otherness, his holiness, the distance between us because of our sin. So some questions this morning. Do you need to confess something? Do you need to repent of something? Do you need to name some of the ways that you've created distance between you and God? Do you need to recognize God's holiness? Do you need to sort of pause for a moment and, and, and with some awe and some wonder and some reverence, consider what God has done to erase the distance between us? Do you need to worship? And then on the other side, we have God's eminence. Do you know him? Does he know you by name? Do you trust that he knows you by name and that he will go with you and that he will give you rest? Will you ask for more? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Moses example for all the ways that he got to experience your nearness, your presence with him, made real to him in all kinds of, of crazy and amazing ways. And yet, God, he also had this, this very deep awareness of your otherness, your holiness, and how he was so unworthy to be in your presence. God, I pray that you would teach us to hold the tension between those two things well so that we can have more awe and reverence, a, a deeper sense of worship for what you have done for us, but then also a very real connection, a very real sense of your presence with us. Father, if there are, are those here this morning who need to confess, who need to own up to the ways in which their sin has contributed to the distance, between you and them, would you give them the courage to confess that today? And God, if there are people who are here this morning who, who are just not feeling it, just don't have a sense of you being with them, would you make yourself real to them even now in this moment as we close our time together today, God? Would you speak to them and let them know you know them and you will go with them, you will give them rest. We pray all of this this morning in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.